Hey, welcome back to the Female Founder World Podcast. It's Jasmine, and today I'm chatting with Ali Kriegsman. I've been trying to get her on the show for probably a year, and we finally sat down and had a chat. She did not disappoint. Ali's the co-founder and COO of Bulletin, which means that she's an expert in what buyers are looking for because she literally built the platform that connects buyers and brands. She's also an author and wrote a book called How to Build a Goddamn Empire, and she has some pretty interesting thoughts about the death of girl bossing, about imposter syndrome, so many interesting things in this chat. You guys are going to love it. But first, a very quick message from our sponsor, Gorgeous. I am Alexandria Collis, Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly. I'm focused on our strategy and innovation in the CX department here at Princess Polly. The Princess Polly online store was born in a true startup style in 2010 in Australia, and we launched our US-based operation in Los Angeles in 2019. And now we are one of the fastest growing online women's fashion brands in the US and Australia. Our first value is customer centricity, so every single department is paying attention to the customer experience. We aim to deliver every single time and being customer focused is really daring to be different. We first and foremost listen to our customers and always remember that customer perception is reality. Our demographic is Gen Z and this is the I expect a response now. I call them the now customer. Our CX teams engage across every single channel. It is very important that we meet our customers where they are and Gorgeous allows us the opportunity to be efficient with all of these channels located in one place. We show up to work each and every day with one goal in mind, and that is to provide the best customer experience for our customers all over the globe. I have a quote, and I always tell our CX leaders that customer experience is the heart of an organization, and we pump the blood and deliver the oxygen to the vital organs in the business to help them thrive and grow stronger. So AI and tech have played a large piece in a lot of the decisions that we've made at Princess Polly over the last year and going forward that we will make when it comes to utilizing systems to their fullest optimization. I will share that late last year, for example, we migrated ticketing platforms from, from the very popular Zendesk to Gorgeous because it is the experience that we're focused on, the agent experience and the customer experience. If you're interested in learning more about Gorgeous, you can go to gorgeous.com and start a free trial today. You are now entering female founder world with your host, Jasmine Grindsworthy. Ali, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you. Welcome to me. Thank you, Jasmine. <laughs> I'm excited to finally have this chat with you. Love the podcast. Thank you. Okay. So you've been working on Bulletin. I was doing some research. I think it's been like seven years. Is that right? Yes. It's been seven long years. Wowza. Okay. And for people who aren't super familiar with Bulletin, can you tell us about what it is you guys have built over there? Yeah, I'll explain what Bulletin is today and then I can give some background on how we got here. So Bulletin acts as a wholesale marketplace for brands and retailers based in the US and Canada. We make it super easy for brands to go live on our platform within a day. Uh, their wholesale catalog gets exposed to the thousands of retailers that use Bulletin to discover new brands and source inventory from our platform. What's cool about Bulletin is that we offer brands net 15 payout terms, meaning product-based businesses can focus on making great new products. They don't have to worry about chasing retailers down for payment. We essentially finance that. And then we uh, offer net 60 payment terms 
to the buyers using Bulletin. So retailers can essentially discover great new brands, source inventory for their store, whether it's brick and mortar, online only. And then they have 60 days to sell the inventory to their end customer before they even have to worry about paying their wholesale invoice with us. So we tried to take a lot of the inefficiencies of wholesale that we experienced ourselves as retailers, which I can get into, and tried to solve a lot of those problems through technology. Yeah. So prior to the wholesale marketplace, Bulletin actually started as um, an e-commerce company. We had a small e-com site on Squarespace. I wrote a newsletter every few weeks explaining the new brands that were joining the site. You could shop the brand story throughout You know, the interviews I would do with these brands or articles I would write about these brands. We ended up doing pop-up markets to promote the website all through 2016. And then we started opening retail stores. Uh, and so for about two and a half years, we were running multiple retail stores at once in New York City and our experience as retailers trying to discover and source great inventory, paying you know, invoices with brands through PayPal, Venmo, uh, you know, their accounts payable department, you name it. And then on the brand side, learning how uh, key it was for a lot of brands to expand their retail distribution, but how difficult it and expensive it was to join showrooms or pay for trade shows. We felt like there has to be a better way. And we started building the early version of the wholesale marketplace in 2019. Um, and we launched it late 2019, right before the pandemic. Awesome. I love when you can connect the dots and make everything make sense retrospectively. I bet like I'm at the time, that. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a huge pivot. That would have been a huge pivot at the time. It definitely was. Um, and I I was writing a book at the time. Um, it's called How to Build a Goddamn Empire. I will shill it later in the conversation. But I was actually writing a chapter on pivoting because it wasn't the wholesale marketplace wasn't our first pivot, right? We had done the newsletter business and the e-commerce site, and then we went to pop-ups and then from pop-ups to stores. And those were a bit more, I would say, natural and incremental, right? Like it's it seems more normal to kind of go from a pop-up model to just a permanent model. Um, but I remember writing the pivot chapter and this was in the middle of becoming a full-blown technology company and shutting down our stores. And I was like, if this doesn't work out, like no one should be reading this chapter. No one should be <laughs> listening to me. So it was, it got even more meta because I have another chapter on imposter syndrome and uh, experiencing imposter syndrome about the pivot while writing about imposter syndrome, <laughs> writing about the pivot, my brain was, was going a little haywire, but yeah, it was a big, it was a big transition, but it was definitely the right move. Um, and yeah, just really thankful for the team and for Alana, my co-founder's leadership. Um, I don't think I would have gotten through it without her, uh, leadership and her guidance. She really pioneered us through that and did a wonderful job. So your co-founder and COO, what does that mean? Like what does your, what's in your remit? Yeah. So I oversee what we call the community team, which is the marketing team, the merchandising team, ops and customer success. So a lot of like otherwise disjointed departments, but pretty much all of the departments that are on the front lines with the end customer, our brands and retailers. So I always like to say that as COO, my job has really been like kind of uh, parachute into any part of the business that is 
not working as efficiently as it could, need some extra TLC, maybe need some extra management, figure out the problems, give my diagnosis, and then create plans of action to make things better. I'm a really great editor as a writer, even I, I, I love editing my work more so than like seeing a empty blank page in front of me. So I, I really do feel like as COO, I'm just kind of like the master editor, capital M, capital mm. E of you know, the customer facing parts of the business. Alana oversees as CEO, our product team, our engineering team, HR finance. Whereas I, yeah, deal with more of the customer facing departments. Do either of you have a tech background or did you hire for that? So me and Alana, neither of us are technical. So like I don't code, right? I don't, I don't have even product project management experience. So we have a head of product, we have a CTO, we've hired a lot of product and engineering mentors and advisors along the way that have equity in the company. But we did both work at technology companies prior to starting Bulletin, albeit it was in marketing sales and business development. What's been really exciting for me is as a salesperson and as a marketer, I've gotten really good at and become really passionate about product marketing. So learning the technical terms, learning how customers uh, digest, receive, vet, and judge technical products and different platforms. I feel like product marketing has become for me a nice marriage of my writing toolkit and my sales toolkit. Um, but it's definitely only been able to blossom by having really strong relationships with the technical people on our team and our technical advisors over the last few years. Okay. Interesting. And how have you guys been funding this? When you made that big pivot to the platform, did you raise like what's, what's behind it? Yeah. So we bootstrapped the business uh, from 2015 to the end of 2016. And we weren't making tons of money with the e-commerce newsletter business. I think we would make like $4,000 or $6,000 a week, or maybe it was a month or something like that. But it was fully dropship. So we didn't have any overhead. We also launched our pop-up markets, the weekend pop-up markets that we did all through 2016, fully bootstrapped. We essentially charged brands a weekend fee to sell their wares and set up shop in this like 18,000 square foot parking lot that we were leasing for like $1,000 a weekend um, and use the monies from like pre-booking the tents to uh, finance the business. And then once we got into Y Combinator, uh, which was in early 2017, that's when we kind of ent entered the venture capital landscape. We raised a seed round of $2 million. And then when we launched the wholesale marketplace, we raised another round from existing investors of about $7 million. So we've been venture funded since early 2017. I feel like we've got a really good lay of the land now about like what you're doing, what yeah. Bulletin is, where you guys have come from. And I want to talk about specifically some of the subject matter expertise that I think you have. Like a lot of our founders on listening to the show are building consumer brands and yes. you are in such a perfect position to be able to tell folks like what a buyers and retailers looking for. So I'd love to know what tips you have to share, what you've seen working, what's not working. And if there's been anything that's shifted in the last couple of years that you think is really interesting. Definitely. I think there's been a massive shift in our industry with marketplaces like Bulletin 
fair, abound, tundra, uh, fashion go, I think with the pandemic really kneecapping showrooms and trade shows, um, this digitization that was already happening in our industry just uh, totally exploded. Like the pace of innovation and adoption of these digital platforms really accelerated during the pandemic because brands couldn't showcase at a trade show or in a showroom and retailers couldn't go to trade shows or showrooms. So I think for any consumer brand that is doing wholesale or considering wholesale or is curious about what buyers are looking for, a lot of the like relationship building and the storytelling that would happen between you and the buyer in these in-person venues now has to happen online. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not just about having great product photography, which is obviously table stakes, having great editorial photography, which is table stakes, so that the buyer understands who your customer is and the ethos of your brand, which you can totally do through imagery. It's really about having robust and consistent product descriptions that are in your brand voice. It's about having a brand knowledge kit or education kit that you can send to buyers so they have the tooling and the equipment they need, the information they need to train their retail staff so they can effectively sell your products. It's about building um, communities of buyers or potential buyers and engaging with them on a consistent basis. A brand I love that's been doing this for a very long time is Fur, the pubic hair oil brand. The two co-founders, they basically have an entire Instagram dedicated to their retail buyers. It's called Fur Professionals. So they're talking to messaging and engaging with their buyers on social media the same way that they are on their consumer fur channel. But obviously, the positioning, the language, the education is very different. Um, They just did a really cool offsite with their buyers and potential buyers that I saw on Instagram. So I think just kind of leaving it to the digital platforms and our algorithms, like the bulletins and fairs of the world to just handle wholesale for you. Um, it's, it it doesn't work like that. Those platforms are saturated. These buyers have endless optionality now because they can shop wholesale, like they shop consumer as consumers on Amazon. So I think really doing the level of engagement and community building that a lot of your listeners are already doing with their consumers, apply the exact same methodology to your prospective wholesale buyers and your current wholesale buyers, create a newsletter dedicated to them that you send once every two weeks, send them samples, send them freebies, really engage them and make them feel special the same way that you would with any like micro influencers that are Mm -hmm. in a consumer affiliate program. That's um that's a really great tip. This is something that I have uh, when I have this conversation with founders about press and PR and influencers. And I'm like, at the end of the day, they're just people. What can you do to make them excited about the brand, keep them updated and talk to them at whatever level they are? And obviously it's exactly the same with buyers. Like they're yeah. just people. How do you connect with them and tell them about your brand in a way that makes them excited? And I can definitely share some don'ts because yeah. I collected a lot of don'ts along the way. Personalize all of your emails. Like don't approach buyers with kind of the spray and pray mentality. Look at what other brands they carry. Look at what their stated values are. Um, Stalk the buyer on their own personal Instagram or Twitter or Pinterest if you can, and get a flavor for this person's taste and their aesthetic and what they care about and craft your outreach, whether it's over email or on DM around them. Another thing I would say is don't just show up to the store. I think that that used to be 
really normal and par for the course for like showroom reps to just like show up at a store, wholesale rep to just show up at a store, for brands to just show up at a store. Small businesses are really underwater right now, retailers in particular, with staffing shortages and issues, supply chain issues. Really treat the buyer with the same respect that you'd want to be treated as a small business if someone just showed up at your office or at your studio to pitch you. How would that feel, right? So I think there is some like rethinking that needs to happen given the the position that a lot of independent retailers are in right now to be respectful, to be accommodating. And to your point, Jasmine, just like treat them as people versus a sale. Mm, that's really smart. Good advice. We actually had a, a group call with our community of brand builders and the founder of a business called Lit Rituals. I love and on the team. Yeah. Yeah, she, which was just so interesting. We do this female founder finance diaries thing and she did one and basically reported that they're about to hit a million in revenue and that most of it comes through small independent stores and that platforms like Bulletin are basically how she's achieved that growth and how important it was for her. And she had a bunch of lessons and folks can go back and listen to that on demand through our website if they want to. But she had a bunch of tips about how to get the most out of the platform. Do you have any very specific advice about what to do on Bulletin to be be more visible? Definitely. So we are one of the only wholesale platforms that has a proactive tool and way for retailers to, for brands to post newness for brands to post about themselves and for brands to proactively communicate with retailers that haven't ordered from them yet. A lot of the other platforms are just a wait and see approach for the brand. And there isn't somewhere where you can post a picture of you and your co-founder and tell your brand story or post Mm -hmm. any special discounts that you're launching. So our discovery feed was built exactly for this reason, to give brands more power in a world that's very heavily driven by algorithms. So I definitely think for brands posting to this discovery feed is super important. I think also adjusting your product descriptions, your product titles to match keywords that retailers are looking for. So every quarter we publish um, an insights report. We send one to retailers and we send one to brands. And we really try to educate brands on how retailers are currently finding the inventory that they're coveting on Bulletin. And so if you, let's say, are Lit Rituals and you sell uh, balms and tea tokes and um, incense, uh, it's one thing to just have those words, but you may want to tag your incense with fall cozy, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Thinking beyond just the literal of what your products are. Good tip. And thinking about, what keywords retailers are using to find the inventory. Oftentimes it's not as literal as like sandalwood incense. Sometimes they're looking for inspiration. And so they'll type in, you know, fall cozy or um, spring colorful. So I think putting yourself in the position of the buyer and knowing that, yes, there are times when a buyer knows exactly what they're looking for. That's why we have categories. That's why we have rigid uh, categorization for certain SKUs, right? We're putting rings in the jewelry so that if a retailer is looking for rings, they can go to jewelry and then go to rings. But I think also understanding that oftentimes buyers are doing like 40% 40 to 50% tried and true and then 
40 to 50% like discovery and an introduction of newness and new brands. If you're looking to do business with retailers, really try to build your profile and your positioning on Bulletin and these other marketplaces around that discovery, not just the literal of what your product is or what it does or what it's made from. Great tip. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about your book, How to Build a Goddamn Empire. I have heard, I don't know if you said this on another podcast or I heard someone else say it, but I like took a note of someone calling it a millennial pink Trojan horse, which made me cackle. (laughs) I love that. That's exactly, that was exactly the intention. So whoever. Why is that true? Why is that true? Tell people what that's about. You know, it's, I think only after publishing the book did I realize that it was a millennial pink Trojan horse. I, my style is very femme. My aesthetic is very, I I think my guidance for my designer who, who designed the book was like Elle Woods meets Rihanna. Amazing. And it wasn't necessarily because I thought that's what would sell the book was so personal to me. It is hybrid how-to meets diary meets founder confessional. I just couldn't imagine encasing the book or presenting my words and my vulnerability through a vehicle and colors and fonts that didn't really represent me and my style. So while I didn't intend for it to be a Trojan horse, after publishing it, I did realize that people would buy the book thinking it was going to be one thing and then realizing it was a completely other thing. Um, The book is very open and candid about the highs and lows of entrepreneurship, the pitfalls, my failures. I interviewed 30 other business owners about their experiences with imposter syndrome, fundraising, failing. They get so candid about certain mistakes that they made in hiring, the struggles in firing people. I, in my last chapter, talked specifically about what it's been like to see women founders kind of get held to a completely different standard in the media compared to male founders. And it's, it's an emotional book. It's an intellectual book. And it's, it's definitely not like a toxic girl boss, you know, how to get to a million in six months. But I totally understand that the aesthetic of the book and the colors and the cover may lead you to believe that. And so I really appreciate that there are people, women out there reading the book who, you know, maybe thought they'd be getting the typical, you know, hashtag, you can do it, hashtag girl boss, hashtag hustle porn narrative. I love knowing that they're getting something that is a bit more real, a bit more raw, a bit more realistic. And like, to me, really accurately reflects what entrepreneurship is and what it feels like. So I think that's, that's the Trojan horse comment. And yes, I think it is correct. Yeah. I love that. What you said about female founders being held to a different standard in the media. I think we've seen so much of that over the last two years, particularly where, I don't know, culturally, we love to build, not even just in entrepreneurship, but in everything. We love to build up women as these role models, and then we love to cut them down. Like that's, And you see it happening again and again and again, and they don't have the same redemption story as I think a lot of men have. If it happens to them, they kind of just go away or like quietly disappear, which is a real shame. And 
I don't know. There's been a lot of conversation lately about the death of the girl boss and people are kind of pulling Emily Weiss into that conversation. And I'm, I'm sitting in this like really uncomfortable space at the moment where I am definitely rejecting a lot of that really like, I don't know, pink washed hustle culture vibe, but also just have so much respect for these women who actually opened a lot of doors and who that was for the time, the same way that we look at Sex in the City and we're like, that there is such a problematic show. But like at the time, it was completely revolutionary and it was the beginning of something that then continued to evolve. So I'm really hesitant about where to throw criticism around in this conversation. Yeah. I'm wondering like where you sit in that now. Yeah, it's it's been a very personal experience because I feel like in many ways I was a quote unquote girl boss. Like I literally started Bulletin with Alana on the heels of finishing the book Girl Boss and reading Lean In right after I graduated college. And the retail brand that we had built through Bulletin, which was in many ways powered by technology. A lot of people didn't know that. We had our own inventory management system that eventually became the marketplace. But the consumer experience of that brand was, you know, all female identifying founded brands in our stores. Our stores were millennial pink and yellow. Um, A lot of, you know, like merch that people bought and wore to the Women's March. Mm -hmm. And a lot of programming that supported women and women founders and women organizations. I look back on that era, I was, you know, 24, 25, 26, 27. And I do spot a lot of ways in which I thought I was being an inclusive leader. I thought that I was doing my best. I thought that I was doing something wonderful. I was helping women entrepreneurs and women-owned businesses. And this was right after Trump got elected. Like it was, Mm -hmm. that was in the air, you know, and I I wasn't perfect and I totally own up to that and admit that. I think about it all the time. I journal about it. I've talked to my former executive coach about it. And I think that on that level, I have a lot of empathy for a lot of these women because I it, it's in my nature. I expect because I truly do try to do my best that everyone is trying to do their best. Mm. And I think that a lot of these women who were trying to do their best had certain blind spots or certain things they needed to get educated on first or educate themselves on first. But I don't think that they were operating from a place of malice or wanting to be non-inclusive or wanting to be disrespectful or wanting to be discriminatory. That being said, I think that it is on white women founders and white women leaders in general to do the extra work and go the extra mile to hedge against and try to account for any silent hidden biases or learned biases or learned behaviors. I really believe that we're all a product of our upbringings, the people we know, the circumstances we grew up in, the people we were exposed to, the people we weren't exposed to, the things we were taught, the things we weren't taught. And I think a lot of this is, it's a lot of the way that the media handled it and and a lot of how certain employee groups have handled their founders exhibiting problematic behavior. 
was done from a place of, you know, you founder did this on purpose, you founder did this knowingly, you founder didn't want to course correct, you founder didn't have the best intentions. And I believe that A, if you're building a business and you take on the risk of building a massive team, like you accept and you know that these are things you have to account for and you are always operating, doing your best because every day is a liability. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's that. But then I think secondly, and this is this is where I actually feel the most tension here on it, Jasmine. And I'm curious what you think is I I as a person feel like I can't judge someone else if I've never been in their shoes, right? I'm not gonna tell like a NASA programmer that they could have done something differently. Like I accept that parts of the Instagram and Facebook algorithm are heavily biased against women and and toward men and in favor of men, but I don't write those algorithms, so I don't I don't know how loud I can get. And yeah. In some cases, like there are people that have just been on the sidelines that haven't actually worked at these companies or been the victims of any of the issues that were b- being brought up at these companies. They're just kind of like on the sidelines observing and and trolling and commenting. And the way I feel about that is like if you haven't tried to run a company, if you haven't managed 10 people, 20 people in the case of the wing, right? Like hundreds and hundreds of people. If you haven't done this work, then like why are you acting like you would have done so much better or done something yeah. very differently? I think that's very, I do want to caveat that with like, this is very different to me than the employees at these organizations speaking up, the victims yeah. of this discriminatory behavior speaking up. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the like looky loos on Instagram and on Twitter that have hot takes on the media that they're reading or on the things that someone told them that someone told them that someone told them. Mm -hmm. And I'm just kind of like being a leader at a startup is really hard. I have empathy for the fact that these, these women are leading in the first place. I think it's amazing. I think it directly inspired me and all the work that I've done. And I get very lost in how to assess people that haven't started companies or haven't done the management, like acting like, these women did such a horrendous job and like kind of speaking as though like they know better because the truth is you don't know better. You haven't been in the ring. You don't, you don't have the experience. Yeah. That, that totally resonates with me. I think like the other thing that everyone needs to kind of consider as well is like people used to make mistakes and you would have the same, you would have the same repercussions in that, like maybe your community would push back on you or, there would be some kind of like town square shaming situation, yeah. but now like the town square is the entire world and they yeah. can access everything about you and they can access you directly in your bedroom and it's through your phone and through your computer. And that is a really different experience to, I don't know, being called, doing badly at your job and being called out by your boss in a private situation. Like it's, they're playing at a different stake. And I feel like there does have to be some level of, yeah, you can't possibly understand what that person's going through in that moment. And like, it's not super helpful to have 5 million people screaming on Twitter about it. Yeah. Yeah, It would probably be more effective to keep things in. I don't want to say keep things internal. I think there are definitely instances where employees tried to make internal change. It didn't happen or it didn't happen fast enough. And they felt like they had no other choice. And I think that's a very reasonable way to feel and a reasonable way to act. That being said, the people on the sidelines that aren't actually a part of this 
work in this conversation that just yeah. want to rip at these women. I'm like, what is the what is the intention? The intention here isn't to help this woman see the error of her rate ways or course correct or learn. The intention is just to make this person feel like shit. And when someone feels like shit, their lessons they 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 are more likely to feel like a victim than to feel like they made a mistake and need to yeah. make improvements. That's the other kind of issue here to me. Yeah. I also like really question, and I'm not even talking about like a specific incident of this because it's happened so much over the last two years in like really big public ways and smaller ways as well, where you see these women-led businesses, the founders being kind of like pushed out for multiple reasons and various cancellations. And I don't know, like, I just wonder like a, a generation of women having seen this kind of rise and then fall, yeah. like, what does that do? Because it definitely, like, I'm definitely someone who thinks about what I'm contributing publicly. And I definitely second guess when I post and I definitely second guess about putting myself out there. And the more visible I become, the more nervous I become as well about what I'm saying. And I just, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, or like, I have no point to this, except that it's, it's an interesting shift to have watched this happen in real time and how that's going to impact the next generation of founders. I think it definitely is impacting current founders and the next generation of founders. I think Mm. it just further proves that not only will women be held to a different and higher standard in pitch meetings and in hiring, in, in trying to build out a team, in trying to get great advisors, in trying to, you know, even outside of like founding a company and trying to like accelerate yourself at work and, and be given the like respect that your role demands. Like women are, women are not only going to be held to this kind of higher burden of proof or higher standard in those settings, but the the public is also going to be and is holding you to a higher standard as well. The thing that's insane to me, and I write about this in the last chapter of my book, is like, I mean, there there's a book written about Jeff Bezos and the founding of Amazon. And like, he, if you compare the things that he said to and about his customer success team, the slurs he used and the words he used, which I'm not going to share here because they're ableist and horrible. If you compared that to what Steph Corey shared with her away customer success team, I mean, Jeff Bezos is the devil. Like, is yeah. literally <laughs> so insanely offensive. I mean, Elon Musk at Tesla factories, there are workers like peeing in water bottles and getting reprimanded yeah. for wanting formal, true bathroom breaks. And some of them have been hospitalized from overheating, working in the factories. And it's like, no one is, I mean, there are a lot of people that hate Elon Musk. Like he's he's not necessarily a beloved character, neither is Jeff Bezos, but no one is calling for them to step down as CEO of their companies, right? No. Yeah, totally. It's interesting. We have this weird link between being a woman and being and morality. And you need yeah, to be yeah. like really like if if you're gonna be successful, you better be successful on behalf of your entire community and making yep, everything yep. better for everyone. Yeah. And I I have I have really struggled with being in the venture world and seeing what wins and who wins and yeah. often, and I'm not, I, this is my opinion. This is based on my exposure and my experience being moral and ethical and upholding all of the most pristine values at all times is actually at odds with building a unicorn. 
Um, mm. And so that's something that worries me is like women will keep launching and building businesses over the pandemic female entrepreneurship has absolutely skyrocketed, especially with women of color, which is so exciting. That being said, how many of those women will feel comfortable doing what it takes, so to speak, to accelerate their businesses forward? How many women will end up with a hire on their team that is a low performer and disrespectful to them and toxic because they're afraid of what that performer is going to post on Medium once yeah. they get laid off? How is that going to affect the business's bottom line? How is that going to affect the ability to retain other talent on the team? And so I think those are kind of the ripple effects of what the cancellations over the last few years have done to this, you know, to at least my community of women founders. You operate from a place of fear, to your point, you said you feel it as well. And I think it's really affected the like contract between employer and employee deeply in favor of the employee in a way that I think is on the one hand, really powerful and empowering. And on the other hand, I fear puts leaders, especially women leaders in a position of not making hard decisions for the sake of staying likable or staying in this like realm yeah. of, of perceived morality. Yeah, you've, you've absolutely nailed it there. I also think as we have this kind of rise of, of especially in consumer, of female founders being the face of their businesses on yeah. TikTok and they're so visible and they're so tied to their company and as to their brand and to the face of the company that it just becomes the the rise or fall or anything that that founder does is then so tied to the success of the business. You can't yes. You can't separate them at all and I just... I worry about like what that risk looks like as company scale. Definitely. And I write about that in my last chapter too. It's like, there are so many more women that bear the burden of being a CEO and an influencer at the same time. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's expected and it's seen as a value add to the business. Whereas I'm not sure how often customers or investors do that same uh, I don't know, hold that same standard to, to male consumer founders. This is something I talk about on the podcast all the time with founders. And usually when we've stopped recording, we have the conversation afterwards and they're just like, I don't want to be on TikTok all day, every day. I started this to scale a company. I have yeah. a MBA. Like that's what I want to be doing. I don't want to be creating TikTok videos, but they do so much better if I'm in them. And it's yep. this weird, like, What's the opportunity? What's the cost of that? What do you What do you do? I could talk to you about this all day, Ali. I know. I'm like, <laughs> we're at 40 minutes. We'll do another 40 minutes. <laughs> we'll do another one. But, but I do have to let you go soon. But before I do, I wanted to see if you have a resource recommendation or a couple that you wanted to share for founders who are on this journey, maybe a little bit, a couple of steps behind where you are now. Yeah. So I will recommend my book, um, not for my story in particular, because I'm not a product-based business. But because I really think the other women that I interviewed for the book are so inspirational and they range in the size of their business. Like there are some part-time Etsy sellers featured in the book. And then there's like massive venture-backed businesses featured in the book. And then there's like really cool slashies like Mina Harris, who runs Phenomenal Woman, which is an apparel and accessories company, but she's also like co-producer of a Broadway show. And so I think that a lot of there's a lot of opportunity for readers to find themselves in in these women's stories 
And I think another resource for me has been, uh, I, I love Glennon Doyle's podcast. It's called Hard Things or We Can Do Hard Things. I think that there is like way more resourcing out there for founders when it comes to like building a marketing plan and like mm-hmm. seeing how another founder like decided to finance their company. I care a lot more about emotional resources and mental resources. That's like part of what my book is for sure. But I think that her Glennon Doyle's podcast talking about setting boundaries that became so important for me as a founder. So many women are particularly bad at it. She talks about what are the signs of like a true friendship? I think that as you grow on your founder journey, you end up like thinning out the pool of people that you spend time with. How do you yes, do that in a way so that true. serves you? How do you know who to keep in your circle? How do you know who are your true allies? How do you know? Oh, this is- What did she teach you? I'm so interested in this. I saw you post about it on Instagram. So I think that it's there's that quote that's like friend, true friends will not hold you to the standard of who you've been to them. They'll like welcome you with open arms for who you are and who you're becoming. Um, for me as a founder, there was that gut feeling like certain friends would react to me not being able to take a trip or go to a birthday dinner or whatever with like disdain and discomfort um, veiled, obviously, as best they could. And then other people would be like, so excited for you, you know, when's the next pop-up? When can I come? Totally understand. Um, And I think true friendship is about holding space for people as they shape, shift and evolve and figure out who they really are versus trying to put someone, force another person into a box of who you want them or need them to be as a friend. Um, And I think that's what founders have a particularly hard time with. We deal with a lot of guilt when we can't show up, when we have to prioritize work over a friend related thing. If we almost sometimes feel like if we had a really shitty day and a friend just got broken up with, like we have to say no to taking that call that night. And we have to say, Hey, are you free in two days? I'll be available then. But you feel shitty that you can't be available immediately. Yeah. Um, And I think the friends that like accept your way of life um, and want the best for you, you'll feel it. Um, I really feel like there's a gut spidey sense when someone's trying to like shove you into a version of yes. you that you're you're in the middle of outgrowing. Um, the, I feel like the only other time when your priorities, well, one of the only other times that your priorities shift so much is like parenthood. Yeah. And that is something where actually the um, the responsibility of who needs to be the more supportive friend kind of like shifts. It's like the person who's just become a parent gets the support from their friends. Yeah. Whereas during entrepreneurship, like there's not the same understand I don't know I don't know if it's because it's not as much of like a shared or like widely understood journey that people aren't as like understanding about it but it's interesting to me that one of those things is so universally accepted and then the other one isn't yeah yeah it reminds me of you mentioned sex in the city I feel like there's that Carrie Bradshaw quote that's like I should have a shower, like a bridal shower for (laughs) like getting, like launching my book or getting my new apartment or whatever it was, or maybe it was Samantha. Um, But yeah, I think that like, there's just a lot of um, people bristle at the idea of women putting themselves first. And I think that's what Mm -hmm. a lot of entrepreneurship is. And the friends who bristle, like, fuck them. Maybe they'll come back around if they have something 
that they want to work on and prioritize and they can finally relate to it. But when friends can't relate to that, often it's coming from their own sense of martyrdom that like they don't do that, right? Like they they don't put themselves first. So you shouldn't be putting yourself first. Or it frankly just comes from like a pure inability to relate. But for more on this, listen to Glennon Doyle. (laughs) Ali, thank you so much. And we've gone so, so over time, but it was awesome talking to you today. I just loved it. You too, Jasmine. Thanks, everybody. We love Ali at Female Founder World. And if you want more from her, you can actually watch the recording of a workshop that she hosted for our community almost a year ago now. It's a workshop on how to build your network and how to leverage that network as you're growing a business. It's available for free in our community. It's a free community as well. If you want to access it, just click the link in the show notes and it'll take you there. See you next time. Mads, I am obsessed with our brand pillars. You mean vagina sweat, good branding, and being Jewish blooded queens, Scout? Uh, sure, but not quite. I love that OKSIS podcast and our sisterhood is made up of women who are down for main character energy only, who take care of their mental health, and who are standing in their personal power as entrepreneurs. Oh, yeah, that too, Scout, that too. We should probably introduce ourselves. Hello, everyone. I am Mads. And I am Scout. And we are sisters IRL. Join us on OKSIS Podcast every Monday for some sisterly banter, nourishing mental health, a whole lot of silliness, and inspiring interviews from the raddest female guests in the game. We promise it'll be a good time. As long as you don't get too loud, Mads. Welcome to the sisterhood!